Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I vividly remember my first encounter with Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. It was April 17th, 1990, at the old RPM Club in Toronto. Nine Inch Nails were opening for goth god Peter Murphy, and frankly, nobody cared. I was there with a bunch of other people chatting at the bar while this noisy band blitzed their way through the first four songs of their set. Then came song number five. It was an insanely heavy version of the Queen song Get Down, Make Love from their 1977 album News of the World. It took about 30 seconds for the crowd to pick up that the band had launched into this cover, and it was a good cover, an excellent cover. And I remember, and I did this myself, seeing the entire audience turn as one toward the stage to see what the hell was going on. My memory is that everyone suddenly got into the band. And for the rest of the set, which consisted of ring finger down in it and head like a hole, the crowd went nuts. And we were rewarded for our attention by the band smashing their gear to bits at the end. And that was it. I was, I was sold on this new band, and I've been a fan ever since. Nine Inch Nails is one of my desert island bands. I've seen the band more times than I can count, and I've interviewed Trent on multiple occasions. I have just about every single physical release, including several Nine Inch Nails box sets. In fact, if you look into my library, you will find that I have more Nine Inch Nails bootlegs than anyone else. I even wrote a book on the first two albums. With all that in mind, here are some of my favorite stories about Trent and his band. And because I like being cute about these things, I'm calling the show Nine Nine Inch Nails Tales. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. After that opening story, I just had to play that. Nine Inch Nails, and a version of Queen's Get Down, Make Love. It became a favorite, even though it was originally barely a bonus track on the CD single for the song Sin. If you look at the credits, you'll see that it was produced by someone named Hypoluxa, which is actually Al Jorgensen of Ministry. We'll run across him again in a few minutes. Hello again, I'm Ellie Cross, and like I said, this program is called Nine Nine Inch Nails Tales, Nine Stories from the History of Trent's Band which has been a going concern since 1988. At least 20 million records have been sold, 13 Grammy nominations, two wins. Trent has also won two Oscars for scoring movies. And he accidentally turned Lil Nas X into one of the biggest pop stars in the planet, but we'll we'll get to that. Nine Inch Nails' tale number one has to do with Trent before Nine Inch Nails. He grew up in Mercer, Pennsylvania. Ever see those Large industrial heaters and warehouses hanging from the ceiling marked Resner. That's the name of the HVAC company founded by his grandfather decades and decades ago. When his parents divorced, he went to live with his maternal grandmother. In addition to playing the tuba in the school band, (laughs) the tuba, uh, he gravitated towards the piano, and he seemed to have a real knack for it, too. As he got older, Trent really, really wanted to get out of town, a place that offered to him nothing interesting. A big moment came when he went to his first concert, the Eagles of all bands, in 1976, and that's when he decided he wanted to be on stage. He joined his first band while still in high school. They were called Option 30. 
Then he moved to Cleveland and joined a cover band called The Urge. After that was a stint playing keyboards in a Bon Jovi-ish band called The Innocent, which lasted all of three months. And from there, it was on to a group called Exotic Birds. Another gig followed with a band called Slam Bamboo, and then a new wave group called Lucky Pierre. Nothing really clicked. Things started to get better when he got a job as a janitor at a Cleveland recording studio called Right Track. Trent convinced the owner to let him record demos when the studio wasn't being used. And this is how and where Nine Inch Nails was born. Now, you may ask, did Trent record anything with any of those pre-Nine Inch Nails bands? Well, thanks for asking. Yes, he did. Let's, uh, let's have a listen, shall we? First, a little Option 30 from 1984. Here's what Trent sounded like playing in The Innocent in 1985. After that came Exotic Birds. There were two albums, and Trent was on the second called L'Oiseau, which came out in 1986. And then we have Slam Bamboo. Finally, Lucky Pierre. Only that last one sounds anything like something Trent would do in the future. Trent was with Lucky Pierre for about six months in 1988 before he left to concentrate on his janitorial duties at the recording studio. And, of course, he was interested in pursuing these all-night demos he was doing. Here is one of those demos. The result of those demos was a record deal which leads us to Nine Inch Nails Tale number two, The Disaster with TVT Records. Let's start at the beginning there. Demos were sent out to a bunch of labels with TVT emerging the winner. And this was pretty unusual because TVT stood for TV Tunes. This was a label founded by Steve Gottlieb. At first, all the label did was release compilations of old TV theme songs from shows like The Jetsons and The Munsters and The Beverly Hillbillies. Dozens and dozens and dozens of these old TV theme songs. 
and they sold well enough for Steve to move on to signing real bands. Steve heard Trent's demos and thought he had the next Depeche Mode on his hands, a dancey technopop band capable of churning out hit singles. But when Trent turned in his record, he called it Pretty Hate Machine, Steve, um, well, he kind of hated it. Actually, he, he called it an abortion, quote unquote. This wasn't the band he thought he signed. The music was too heavy, too dark, too loud, too angry. Because Steve had spent so much recording it, TBT issued the record anyway, and much to his surprise, the record sold quite well. In fact, it sold half a million copies, mostly on word of mouth. But when Steve demanded that the follow-up record be more commercially palatable, Trent not so respectfully declined and demanded that he be let out of his contract. TBT said, nope, and put Trent in limbo for a couple of years. TBT allowed Pretty Hate Machine to go out of print for a while, and a copy was very, very, very hard to get. Meanwhile, Trent was forbidden to record and release any more music until this whole dispute was settled. If TVT found out that there was new music, well, they would have probably confiscated it for its own use. The result was that Trent had to record secretly and under fake names. One such recording was a ministry spin-off band called 1000 Homo DJs. Yeah, I, I, I know, not, not, not a very woke name. Al Jorgensen was very sympathetic to Trent's situation, so he had him do the vocals on a cover of the Black Sabbath song, Supernaut, or so we were told. There is a lot of dispute and confusion as to if Trent's vocals actually appear on any version of Supernaut. The truth seems to be that there's only one. If you're looking for it, it has to be labeled Trent Reznor vocal version. Otherwise, we're just hearing Al Jorgensen's voice through a lot of distortion processing. Fortunately, though, I have a massive Nine Inch Nails CD collection, and I have the Trent Reznor vocal version, which goes like this. Glad we settled that. Nine Inch Nails Tale number three involves some pretty weird videos. The first involves the video for Down In It from the first album. The plot shows Trent being chased through the streets of Chicago by a couple of baddies. Eventually, they catch him, and Trent gets pushed off the top of a building, and we see him on the ground lying in a pool of blood. The video director required some aerial shots, but since there was no money in the budget for a crane and a helicopter and all that sort of stuff, a camera was attached to a balloon and sent aloft. But then a big gust of wind tore the balloon and the camera from its moorings. And uh, bye-bye. The balloon and the camera eventually came down 150 miles to the east of Chicago near Burr Oak, Michigan, where it was found by a farmer in his field. At first, he thought it was a surveillance balloon operated by the police looking for pot farms. None of my business, he thought, so he gave the camera back to who he thought was the rightful owner, the cops. Now, obviously, it wasn't the cops, but when they looked at the footage, they were shocked. They just recovered video of an actual murder, probably a gang killing or some kind of cult murder. And because the balloon crossed state lines from Illinois into Michigan, the FBI got involved. And the FBI pathologist was convinced that the body in the pool of blood was genuine and, in fact, rotting. 
an investigation was ordered. Flyers were handed out all over Chicago, including many high schools for some reason, asking for any information on who this person in the video might be. The case was open for an entire year and was only solved by a university student in Chicago who just happened to see the down in it video on MTV, minus, of course, the death shot because that had floated away with the balloon. He'd also seen the flyer handed out by the FBI. So the guy put two and two together, called the FBI, case solved. A far more disturbing video was made on purpose for the Nine Inch Nails EP called Broken, which Trent describes as eight songs of ultra-fast chunks of death. The original version was to release an art project with Peter Christofferson, a member of Throbbing Gristle and Coil, two bands very important to the industrial music scene and two favorites of Trent. The goal from the beginning was to push the boundaries of taste and tolerance. This video runs about 20 minutes and looks like some sort of found footage of a man being tortured in a basement. The star of the video was a guy named Bob Flanagan. He was a performance artist and professional masochist who also suffered from cystic fibrosis. He was strapped naked onto some kind of machine and is slowly ground into meat. And that's about the least gross description I can give you. It's, it's, it's a lot worse, believe me. And all the acts Bob subjected himself to were not simulated. There's a, a thing with a nail and... I, oh, I, can't, I can't even say. It was too much for Trent, so he decided not to release it. Except on VHS tape to a few friends... And from there, it leaked and was sold as a bootleg. You can try to look for it, but I advise against it. Really. Here's a sample of the music that went along with that film for Broken. This is Happiness and Slavery. That's three Nine Inch Nails tales. Number four is coming up. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a show I've cleverly entitled Nine Nine Inch Nails Tales. Think of it as a browse through events in the long career of Trent Reznor. And this is tale number four, and it's not very pleasant. After Trent was rescued from the suffocating deal with TVT Records, producer Jimmy Iovine brought him into the fold of Interscope Records. It was time to record the second album, and he could do it without worrying about TVT. Trent didn't want to work in the usual studio environment, so he enlisted an L.A. real estate agent to find him a place to rent. They toured through a couple of places, but none of them seemed right. But then, 10,050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon looked pretty promising. It was on a hard-to-find cul-de-sac, with the house situated more than 100 feet off the road behind a gate, and the property was ringed with lots of mature trees. The lot itself was three acres, and the nearest neighbor was maybe 100 yards away. There was a lot of room in the 3,200-square-foot main house. There was a big master bedroom with easy access to the pool. There was a 2,000-square-foot guest house out back. It was secluded, yet there was plenty of access to the city. And the rent? It was awfully cheap for a house that big, 
and for a house that was on the market at the time for $4.9 million. But owner Rudy Altabelli was having a very hard time selling it, so he decided to rent it to whomever he could. Perfect, said Trent. I'll take it. It was apparently only after the rental agreement was signed that Trent learned of the house's history. 10,050 Cielo Drive is where the first of the Manson family murders took place. On the night of August 8, 1969, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel, all Manson followers, broke into the house and brutally murdered everybody who was there. There was Abigail Folger, the heir to the coffee fortune, an aspiring writer named Wojcik Fryakowski, who was also Folger's lover, Jay Sebring, a celebrity hairstylist, a friend named Stephen Perrant, and actress Sharon Tate, the very pregnant wife of director Roman Polanski. It was she and Polanski who were renting the place at the time. The Manson family people cut the phone lines, scaled the gate, and crept across the lawn. Perrant was the first to die, shot with a 22 caliber pistol. Folger was slightly high on MDMA and was reading in her bedroom. She smiled when the murderers burst in, thinking that they were just more of the strange friends that tended to drop by the house. But she was chased outside and repeatedly stabbed until she was dead. Frykowski was found on the front porch, stabbed 51 times, and his head caved in with the butt of a rifle. In the living room, Sebring was found with a rope around his neck. And next to him, at the other end of the rope, was Sharon Tate. She was eight months pregnant. And on the wall of the living room, written in Tate's blood, was the word pig. Trent didn't know anything about the house's history until a friend gave him a copy of Helter Skelter, the definitive story of the Manson murders by Vincent Bugliosi. Trent was understandably freaked out and tried to get a house in New Orleans he'd seen earlier, but that property had been sold. So, with no other option, Trent and his gear moved in to 10,050 Cielo Drive in July 1992. All the studio gear, which took three months to install, was set up in the room where Tate and Sebring were found. But the equipment mysteriously frequently broke down or refused to work. Did that have something to do with the bad juju in the house? Trent decided to christen this temporary studio Le Pig. Uh, pretty tasteless, I know, but now you know why the word pig features so prominently on the album that would be called The Downward Spiral. Nine Inch Nails Tale number five. It's also not very pleasant, but at least it has a happy ending. Recording the downward spiral was a horrible ordeal for Trent. I quote, The time of the album was the blackest, the bleakest. I hate what I do. I don't like doing it anymore. He didn't know it at the time, but Trent was about to head into his own downward spiral. In the five years that followed the album, Trent fell into deep depression something that he sought to remedy with a lot of alcohol and plenty of drugs, including coke and heroin. He began to have suicidal thoughts. Hanging out with his new buddy, Marilyn Manson, certainly didn't help. And then his grandmother, the person who raised him, died. So he was a mess. Still, he managed to record a third Nine Inch Nails album called The Fragile, which came out in 1999. The addictions, though, were still there. And the only solution was some very intensive rehab, I spoke to him about that in 2005. 
Well, the reality is that I had to spend some time getting my life in order because I'd, I'd really fallen into the clutches of addiction. And um, it was time for me to kind of face up to that fact and deal with it. You know, and come 2001, after the last tour, I was at a point where I was ready to check out. You know, I was, I, my, my soul had been crushed by uh, being an alcoholic and an addict. And there was no denying at that point, and it had consumed me and destroyed me. And uh, there was a fork in the road, and it was either death by my own hand or from any number of other ways it could have happened, or fix myself. And it took a moment of clarity to realize I wasn't ready to die yet, or hoped I wasn't ready to die yet. And I took the means necessary and decided I would do anything, anything to turn my life around it was not going well. And around that same time, you know, I also, for a change, decided to put a little effort into myself. And I think ever since I got a record deal, I hadn't ever spent any time trying to take care of myself. And I don't mean physically in as much as, uh, you know, I thought I didn't need people and I didn't need friends. And, I, you know, if I, situations would come up I didn't want to deal with, I just wouldn't deal with them. And I'd, I'd found something that makes me feel good. And that was writing music or recording or playing or touring. And so I'd use that as that was my way of dealing with everything, you know, and the end result was that closet full of uh, crap. Things didn't go away. They just waited in there. You know, I think in the mid nineties when superstardom kind of set in and I was ill-equipped to deal with that to begin with, you know, I, I started relying on self-medicating to get through those things. And, and that made me more interesting and that made it able for me to walk into a room full of people, you know, and for a while it did do that. But, um, I had no idea what I was up against. You know, I had no idea really what was happening to me. And um, I had addressed the situation like in 97 and was kind of secretive about it and didn't want anyone to know because I felt very ashamed that I'd letting something get out of hand. And I kind of white knuckled it through the recording of The Fragile and on a pretty slippery slope. And when the record came out, you know, I thought, hey, I'm cured. It's debut at number one. And it was off to the races again. And that... Uh, then I spent a good year and a half testing to see how low I could go. And I, I found that I can go as low as I'd never want to go again. It's a miracle that I didn't die on that tour. And it was just a miserable time of being sick and sweating and vomiting and hiding and just being awful. So anyway, when I did get my act together and really learned a number of lessons that, you know, primarily humility being humble. Uh, I learned that I don't know everything and I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And the world doesn't revolve around me, believe it or not. And uh, that I don't know everything and I can't control you and everything else. Things started to get better. Things started to get a lot better. And I decided also at that time to, to kind of ease up on the pressure I've been putting on myself to continually try to outdo myself or piling on work. I know I can't get through, you know, because, uh, it was a way of not dealing with everything else in my life. And uh, I wanted to take a little time and get comfortable in my own skin and feel like I could get to know myself again, get to like myself again, because I hated myself at the end of that run. And I also was very much afraid that I didn't know if I could write anymore. I didn't know if I could write sober. I didn't know if I could, uh, I didn't know if I destroyed my brain. And I really wasn't up for finding that out a week into sobriety. I figured I'd like to see what planet I'm on and see how things work on this new in this new world. And 
you know, so I did. I took some time off. That was in 2001, and that's, you know, sh shortly thereafter, 9-11, and the world seemed crazy, and, uh, and I was grateful to be present for all that. And I, I took care of myself, and I did what I was told to do, and I, I wanted to get to the bottom of what kind of madness was at work inside me, aside from being an addict, things that kind of pushed me in that direction to turn to those things to get through life, and just started a lot of work on myself. This leads us to the With Teeth album in 2005. 13 songs, seven of which featured the drums of some guy named Dave Grohl. Moving to Nine Inch Nails' tale number six, video games. Trent has always been into gaming. In 1996, he created some original music for the game Quake. Remember that? If you can find a copy of the game, which shouldn't be that hard, look for all the Nine Inch Nails Easter eggs. That gig led to work on another game called Doom, Doom 3 to be specific, but circumstances did not work in his favor and he never completed that project. But then we have the Year Zero project. This was both the fifth studio album for Nine Inch Nails and an alternate reality game. The concepts of Year Zero, a scathing critique of the U.S. government, and predictions about how the country would end up as a fundamentalist democracy by 2022 were transferred to this game. Taken together, the Year Zero project is really, really cool. It involves multiple websites, pre-recorded phone messages, emails, videos, murals, and MP3s. Part of the promotion of this album involved leaving USB sticks in places like bathrooms at Nine Inch Nails concerts, and these USB sticks contain clues and music. You could even find clues to the game in the merch sold at those gigs. If you have a chance, I covered the Year Zero project in a separate podcast. If you really want to go down to a rabbit hole, download it. This is one of the singles from Year Zero. It's capital G. Oh, you know, I should mention one more video game project. If you have a copy of Call of Duty 3 Black Ops 2, which came out in 2012, Trent did the theme music. Back with three more Nine Inch Nails tales in just a sec. We have just enough time to squeeze in three more Nine Inch Nails tales. Tale number seven is when we meet Atticus Ross. Atticus is a British musician, producer, and audio engineer. He spent much of the 90s as a programmer for a variety of electronic artists, which included his own band that he formed with his wife called 12 Rounds. They released two albums. He and Trent first crossed paths in the late 90s when a 12-round record called My Big Hero was released through Trent's Nothing Records. Then, in 2000, Atticus moved to L.A. to be part of a project with Trent called Tapeworm. Now, nothing has ever been released by Tapeworm, but the experience must have been pretty positive because Atticus has worked on every Nine Inch Nails album since With Teeth in 2005. He'd also gone into composing film music, starting with a TV series called Touching Evil in 2004. And this was something he had in common with Trent. Back in 1994, Trent produced and curated the soundtrack for Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. Then there was the soundtrack for David Lynch's Lost Highway in 1997. He was also in the running to write music for the creepy Robin Williams movie One Hour Photo in 2001, but that didn't work out. But there was a theme that he wrote for a 2009 Japanese cyberpunk film called Tetsuo. 
In 2010, he and Atticus were commissioned to write the music for David Fincher's story on Facebook called The Social Network, and boom! A Golden Globe and an Academy Award for Best Original Score. And Trent and Atticus were off in the world of movies, scoring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, another Academy Award for that one, another Fincher film, Gone Girl, work on the reboot of Twin Peaks, and the soundtrack of a Pixar film called Soul. Got another Golden Globe for that one. And that's just the start. They've written and recorded music for a climate change doc called Before the Flood, a crime drama about the Boston Marathon bombings entitled Patriot's Day, the score for the Ken Burns PBS series on the Vietnam War, movies called Bird Box and Mid-90s, a drama called Waves, the HBO series The Watchmen, which won them an Emmy, and the Netflix movie Mank. So yeah, a lot of work in movies and TV. This is kind of fun. Trenton Atticus brought in Karen O oh of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs to record this version of Led Zeppelin's immigrant song for the trailer of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. This is Nine Inch Nails tale number eight. There's lots of unreleased material out there. I already mentioned the Tapeworm Project, which was created in 1995 and included a lot of different friends. Work continued off and on for nine years, but nothing was ever released. The record I'm most curious about is the Zach De La Roca solo album. When Zach left Rage Against the Machine, he started on a solo album, but for whatever reason, he abandoned it. But when he tried again with Trent producing, he ended up with somewhere around 20 tracks completed, and Trent thought that they were all excellent, but Zach was so uncomfortable with the results that it's never seen the light of day. Here's Trent on some of those projects. I was doing some other musical projects, none of which kind of panned out. I mean, the tapeworm thing didn't turn out the way we'd hoped. Worked on Zach De La Roche's record, and that went well, but that's never going to see the light of day, I don't think. I produced 12 Rounds record, but my label was dying, so we couldn't put it out. And it got to the point where I was ready to now see what the deal was. Finally, here's Nine Inch Nails tale number nine, and it's a weird one. Starting in 2008, Trent began releasing collections of instrumental works, soundtracks for daydreams, as Trent once described them. The first, called Ghosts 1 to 4, was released online in March 2008 and later released in a variety of physical forms. And in an interesting twist, Ghosts 1 to 4 was released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share alike license. This meant that anyone could use anything on the album for anything at all, as long as it was not for profit. You could download this stuff, mess around with it at home, and that's basically where it should have ended. Trent just really wanted to encourage and support other composers to take on some homework and hopefully expand their skills and horizons. A Dutch beatmaker named Young Keo took up Trent on his offer. He messed with one of the tracks called 34 Ghosts 4 and put the result up for sale online for $30. One guy who paid for the download was a desperate rapper from Atlanta named Montero Hill. Nothing had been going his way, and this was going to be his last shot. So he wrapped some lyrics over the top, took about a day to finish the song, and released the song independently on December 3rd, 2018. From there, Montero, who is better known today as Little Nas X, saw things explode thanks to YouTube and TikTok. And when Billy Ray Cyrus got involved with the project, it really got nuts. 
The song was Old Town Road. It hit number one on the charts around the world, spending a record 19 weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100. It made Little Nas X an international superstar and an awful lot of money. But um, hang on. Remember that non-commercial Creative Commons license for nonprofit use? Okay, so Old Town Road was definitely not nonprofit. As a result, both Trent and Atticus Ross, co-composers of the original source material, 34 Ghosts 4, were given official songwriting credits on Old Town Road and therefore sharing all the chart records of the song. So yes, Trent Reznor is the co-holder of the record for the pop song, the pop song with the most weeks at number one on Billboard. How weird is that? And it all began with this instrumental that neither Trent nor Atticus knew what to do with. There's obviously a lot more to Trent Reznor's story than these nine tales. But I'll tell you something, once you start going down the Nine Inch Nails rabbit hole, you will be there for a very long time. There are a number of biographies written about Trent. I've read them all. And if you're a fan, I recommend all of them, which includes my book called The Making of Pretty Hate Machine in the Downward Spiral. Um, good luck finding one, though, because it's been out of print for years. I think I've got a box of them in the garage someplace. Music news and information can be found daily at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. There's a free daily newsletter that goes with it so you don't miss anything. Give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on Facebook and even TikTok from time to time. And if you have any comments or complaints, I'll take compliments too. Use alan at alancross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 